Well, it is my rare honor and privilege uh, this morning to uh, bring God's word to us on this inaugural meeting of the men's ministry uh, for the Kawata Baptist Church. I do not come to you as an expert. I come to you as one who is in need of learning just as all of us are. We can never think that we have attained to the full stature of what we would love to be as husbands. We can never think that we have learned enough and therefore we are in need of no further learning. We are all constantly learning and because we are constantly learning, we have to be humble and trust that he who is able to train us in righteousness will continue to do so to the glory of his name and to the profit of this institution that he himself has established and to which he has called us, to which he will call you if you are still single, uh, that time uh, will come when these things which may seem to be simply uh, information uh, will have to be practical and lived out daily in your life alongside your wife. And so may I invite us to turn in our, in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. And I will be reading from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, of the second chapter. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, uh, reading from verse 18 to 25. The second chapter of uh, Genesis Chapter 2, we shall read from verse 18 to 25. So the subject that I've been asked to speak on is being romantic and reformed. A biblical view of romance in marriage. Being romantic and reformed a biblical view of romance in marriage. So let me read that passage for us. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, we'll end there for our Bible reading and trust that the Lord will himself uh, speak to us and instruct us from his word. Now, it's uh, by my time, it is 9.57. Uh, did I hear you say, Mr. Singogo, that uh, we'll take a break at 10.15, which gives me 15 minutes? That will only be enough for the introduction. <laughs> 45 minutes. Okay. All right. When I was sent the poster for this meeting, I put it on my status on WhatsApp. And uh, one of the ladies that uh, saw it uh, said to me, our reformed men need to hear this. Sometimes they can be so cold, wooden, and formal to their wives. They have become totally different from the men we knew during our courtship. That's what she said. Reformed husbands. Is that the kind of reputation that we have earned for ourselves? Was this lady true in her assessment of reformed men, reformed husbands? Have we forgotten what it means to be intimate? Have we forgotten what it means to be romantic? I hope that this seminar will remind us and will help us and point us back to our calling as husbands and also do a great service to our wives if there are many whose assessment of us as reformed husbands is like what that lady wrote to me. After being pursued for many years by a man who promises to love them, no wife should find that a husband, after getting married, has now become busy 
pursuing other things, hobbies, sports, education, corporate business plans, etc., etc., and she begins to feel neglected and her emotional needs not satisfied at all. The second chapter of the book of Genesis tells us that God's answer to the aloneness of man it's not good for man to be alone. God's answer to that was the creation of Eve, the creation of the woman, and the creation of the institution of marriage. And when Adam first laid his eyes on Eve, his spontaneous reaction was an outburst of excitement an ecstatic exclamation in poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That was Adam's response. Awakened from the divinely induced slumber, he beholds the work of God and instantly he knows that she was for him. He, he knows that she looked like him and yet she was not exactly like him. He is man, she is a woman. They share so much in common. She's a suitable provision, a suitable helper that God has brought to Adam and is ecstatic about it. He's excited about the provision that God has brought to him. You see, when God made Adam and he gives him this responsibility to name the animals and as they came one after the other and he begins to call forth their names. And that's how intelligent he was. God had given him such knowledge and intelligence that whatever name he came up with, that was the name by which that animal was to be called. It must have been a task that had taken some considerable period of time and as these animals passed by and he gave them their names, one thing was very apparent to Adam. One thing was very clear. None of these animals were like him. It's as if God is, is giving him an object lesson that points him to the need that was there. 
awakening him to this need, though he probably never verbalized it, he felt a sense of loneliness. He must have felt a sense of lostness that there was nothing, there was no animal that was answering to his nature and to who he was as created in the image of God. Until God sends him into this deep sleep and creates a woman from the rib that was taken out of his side and God presents her to him. And immediately and instantly he knows this is my counterpart. This is the one. Do you notice that in his exclamation he says, this at last. Everything else was not sufficient to be a companion. But now at last. Now this is the moment that I feel that I have a friend. I have a companion. I have one that answers to all my needs. And this simple graphic picture of creation is at the heart of what marital intimacy is all about. And this marital intimacy is what gives rise to a thriving and passionate romance in marriage. Intimacy is our uniqueness, our separateness, our diversity lived out every day with the one that God has given to us as a spouse. And because man and woman are different, there is potential for exploration. There is potential for discovery. There is potential for the excitement of this process as it has a whole new dimension to this relationship of marriage. Something deep within Adam responded to something deep within Eve when they two were brought together in this institution of marriage. God created Adam and Eve with the capacity to relate to each other, with the capacity to know one another, to the capacity to understand and to be understood and to communicate with each other. So when Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he was expressing a sense of kinship with this woman. She was related to him. She was the much longed for friend whom he had not known before, but God knew that is exactly what he needed. She was the answer to his inner desires for companionship. And husband and wife have been made for each other by God to experience something of that intimacy, something of that romantic pursuit. 
in an institution which is the deepest, the closest, the most intimate of all human relationship. There is nothing that equals the relationship of husband and wife. A woman may carry the child in a womb for nine months. And in the weeks and months and years that follow, spend so much time with that little one, nestled in her arms, feeding from her breasts, and a strong bond ensues, but even that is nowhere closer to the kind of intimacy that God has designed to be enjoyed within the marital relationship. So what, what was it like for this man and for this woman as the first married couple? What was life like? Well, if we are looking for an extended, documented account of the life of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in their pre-fall existence, there is very little that the Bible gives to us. Very little. The dimension, the depth, the quality of their lives, the kind of conversations that they would have seated together, chatting about life, all that scripture is silent. Very little is taught to us in these verses. But there is one brief statement that the word of God makes in verse 25 that seems to sum it up all. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a summary statement of what kind of life and quality of life that they knew between the two of them. This is the most graphic picture of marital intimacy. Two distinct persons, equal in value, with born deep emotional, spiritual relatedness, physical relatedness, totally transparent, without fear of being known. Obviously, the primary reference here is to the physical nakedness, but implied in this is also the spiritual, the intellectual nakedness, the emotional nakedness, and the emphasis is on transparency and openness and the freedom to know and to be known naked and unashamed. And it is from that that the intimacy develops. It is from that that romance thrives. On your honeymoon, for those of you that are married, it's the first night together for that close. Will you be saying to your wife, 
Look that side. I'm undressing. That's not, that's not what we are going to do. That's not what we are going to say. You will not be ashamed at all to undress in her presence, neither will she be. That's what it was meant to be. That is what it should be. That is what it ought to be. But you and me know too well that as fallen creatures, because things did not remain that way forever. If you go to chapter 3, you discover that there is an intruder in the peace of the garden, in the pristine beauty of the garden, and he disfigures and distorts and destroys everything, including the close relationship between Adam and Eve. And by the time we read further on, they begin to hide their nakedness from each other. And they want to withhold something from the other. And consequently, we have become self-centered. And we often rebel against being known. The fall has limited the level of intimacy that we experience with our spouses. And as Christians, we should never turn away from the potential of high-level intimacy. To do so is to consciously, consciously turn away from God's original plan and God's original intention. We get married because we fall in love. And that is the excitement that Adam expressed when he first saw Eve. Feeling a sense of amazement. This at last. Feeling a sense of belonging to each other, knowing that we were meant for each other, feeling something within each of us that cries out for something deep within the other, sensing that God arranged our meeting, experiencing a willingness to be open with each other, to share our deepest secrets, and to know our hearts that we will love each other no matter what. It is having a willingness to give ourselves totally to each other. That's the stuff that romance is made of. That's the stuff. To be romantic is to be characterized by the expression of love. To be readily uh, demonstrative of the feelings of love to say to and about our wives this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh it is to entertain the notion that this is a journey that I'm going to enjoy this is a life that I'm going to be happy about. And I'll do everything that I can that we make this journey a most enjoyable and pleasurable one together. That's the excitement of Adam. That's the excitement that ought to be in each one of us. 
we must not be under the temptation or under the illusion that to be reformed is to avoid any emotional expressiveness, any romantic playfulness, any physical excitement and delight in our nakedness with our spouses. To fall into this temptation and notion is to negate what marriage was intended to be by God. It is not a demonstration of holiness to be unromantic. It is not. It's as if you are saying to God that I've got a better way in which I will relate with my wife. What you have recommended is not good enough. But we know that marriage is not our idea. It is God's idea. And because it's God's idea, is the one who tells us how we are to live with those that God has, has given to us. And, 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 and look at verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Man was not taken to the woman. It was the woman that was brought to the man. And so we are responsible to take care of this good gift that God has provided to meet the need of our aloneness, to cherish this gift and to handle this gift with the tenderest of care because we did not ask for it. God is the one who in his wisdom, in his love, in his thoughtfulness has provided for us. And that excitement must never begin to grow cold in us. You see, dear friends, we, we, we have a lot to learn from the reformers. We have a lot to learn from the Puritans about marriage. A lot to learn. And I commend to you any works on marriage that have been written as an exploration of their understanding and their practice of marriage according to the scriptures, they have given to us valuable lessons. You see, we tend to think of the Reformation in the 16th century simply in terms of a, a, a rediscovery of the heart of the gospel and the way of salvation that has long been hidden under the popish and, and, and theological errors of the church of Rome and the superstitious beliefs of Rome. Yes, that is true. But even beyond that, there was a recovery of a fully biblical view of marriage. For example... After the death of his wife, Idelate or Idelate, the wife to John Calvin in March of 1549, 
he wrote to his fellow reformer, Pierre Viret, and this is what John Calvin said. I am deprived of my excellent life companion, who, if misfortune had come, would have been my willing companion, not only in exile and sorrow, but even in death. And, and, in, and in this simple statement, as Michael Hakin observes in an excellent book that he has written, which contains the letters of Christians in past centuries, letters that they wrote either to their wives or to their friends about their wives, Michael Hakin says, Calvin, who was normally very discreet about his personal feelings, reveals a view of marriage pours apart from that of medieval Rome Catholicism. For the reformers and those who followed in their steps, the Puritans of the 17th century, and the evangelicals of the 18th and 19th centuries, marriage had an inherent excellence. Marriage was vital for the development of Christian affection, for the development of Christian friendship, and was one of God's major means for developing Christian character and Christian maturity. The late J.I. Parker writing about the Puritans put it this way. They gave marriage such strength, substance, and solidity as to warrant the verdict that under God they were creators of the English Christian marriage. That's what he says about the Puritans. The New England, England Puritan Thomas Hooker, he lived from 1586 to 1647, put it beautifully when he wrote, and I quote, the man whose heart is endeared to the woman he loves, he dreams of her in the night, has her in his eye and apprehension when he awakes muses on her as he sits at table, talks, or rather walks with her when he travels. Oh, that we have so much that we are to learn about romance from the reformers, romance from the Puritans. And why? Because there was so much that they themselves learned from the word of God. And we still use the same Bibles. We use the same Bible as they did. And so we have so much that we can learn ourselves as they did learn themselves and have given to us a rich legacy of their convictions, not only about marriage, but how they were to relate with their wives. So why should you work so hard 
to date and pursue your girlfriend. You are willing to climb the highest mountains and descend to the deepest valleys, but once you marry her, all the romance seems to begin to dry up and you turn into the husband who simply merely shares a home and shares the bills and the conflict and the problems with your wife. And that excitement and pursuit of former years begins to decline. And, and, and we live with a kind of settledness that such is normal. That it's okay to live like that. Our marriage is going through somewhere and tear, and we are happy that it should be so until it pleases the Lord to take one of us away. Where in the scriptures do you find such a notion? Nowhere. Dear husbands, and dear husbands-to-be, it is our enormous responsibility to cultivate a romantic lifestyle with our wives. God has sent us out on a mission and he has given us a book, the Bible, to be the blueprint that we are going to use in order to cultivate that kind of intimacy. Not only has he given us the Bible, but he has also within scripture given us one book, the Song of Songs, the finest of all songs that points us in some profound way to God's love for his people in Christ. The love that is centered, that has entered into this fallen world and the love that is willing to die, lay itself down for the sake of the sheep. A life that lived perfectly in this world and suffered and died for our sins. But the book of Song of Songs also celebrates a great mystery in life. The mutual love of a man and a woman. The mutual love between man and woman. If I had the time, I was, I was going to uh, 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 say a little bit more on the order of the books in the Hebrew Bible, which is different from the order in which they are given to us in the English Bible. Because the, the Old Testament is arranged thematically and theologically. The English order tends to be chronological. And so there's a reason why we have the book of Proverbs, which ends with the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31. And the book of Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible is immediately followed by the book of Ruth. And Ruth is described in the same language of Proverbs 31, a woman of noble character, the Ishkael, as if to illustrate that this is what it means. And then from Ruth you go to Song of Songs. 
I said I don't have the time to do that, but I've just done that. Pardon me. But anyway, there's a lot that can be said about that, but let's quickly move on. So that, that's, that's what is being communicated there. Marriage is being illustrated, the intimates and the romance of a man and a woman from their courtship days up to the time when their marriage is consummated. It's all ecstasy and joy and romance. And God says, in this book, I demonstrate my love for you through Christ, but you also learn how you are to love one another in the institution of marriage, which I I have established. And some of the language of Song of Songs is so graphic, you do not want to read it aloud in the presence of your little ones, but it's, it's God's word. We must not be ashamed of it. It's God's word. But life in a fallen world is hard, and so is marriage. Two sinners living together in a confined space gives plenty of opportunity for driving each other crazy other than fulfilling each other's dreams. That's why it's hard work. That's why, that's why it calls for a lot of energy and a lot of effort and a lot of prayer and a lot of trust and a lot of dependence on God himself. And along the way, as your quiver begins to get full, there's a pack of sinful children, and it becomes a recipe for disorder and confusion. And we begin to have excuses why we cannot be as romantic as we were when there were only the two of us. Well, the Bible does not say, husbands, love your wives. And it's excusable if your love begins to grow less and less because of the responsibilities of raising up these little ones. So it, it, it's fine. I understand. No, that's not what God says. By God's design, romance is supposed to be the flame in the fireplace of marital intimacy. We must never neglect to fan the flames of passion for a lifelong enterprise of romance. That's what it must be. So then, how do we cultivate a lifestyle of romance in marriage? How do we go about doing this? How can we ensure that we do not begin to warm ourselves to a fire that has long died? And we have not made an effort to go out and look for the firewood and fan that fire back into flame. How can we cultivate a lifestyle of romance in marriage? Without being exhaustive, which is an impossibility, and with the limitations of time, uh, let me suggest some ways in which this can be done. And some of them I will do no more than a passing glance at them and say one or two things so that we do not end up uh, 
uh, having little time for uh, that uh, Q&A and uh, panel discussion. Number one, you must become a good student of your wife. How do you cultivate a lifestyle of romance? Become a good student of your wife. The Word of God tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. The NIV says, be considerate as you live with your wives. The King James Version says, dwell with them according to knowledge. And knowledge is something that you acquire through experience and observation and through study. So an integral aspect of true consideration is constantly trying to know and constantly trying to understand your wife better. You must know what it means to be female. You are not female. You are male. But know what it means to be female. Understand the characteristics of femaleness. That they need to feel secure. They need to feel special. And so many others know what your wife needs and know what your wife enjoys. Know what excites her physically. Know what excites her mentally, intellectually, emotionally. And this knowledge takes time. You thought that you knew her during courtship. But then you realize after you get married, that there is very little that you actually knew. And as you spend more and more time together, let that be the time to gain in knowledge of our a good memory and a willingness to be a student so that these things that you are learning, they are not simply ending up in your head and not being lived out with the gift that God has given to you. It is this knowledge, dear brothers, that sets the romantic ambiency in our marriage. You can never confidently get a driver's license and you have never learned how to drive. You don't even know that a vehicle needs a key or a push button to start the engine. You have absolutely no idea. And you just wake up one day and say, well, it's been a long time that I've lived on earth, I'm now 30, I've got money to buy a vehicle, I've bought one, let me now go to Rats and get a driver's license. Well, unless you want to cut corners and bribe someone, yes, you'll get one. But if you have to be tested, theoretically and practically, they take you onto the road and you have never driven a vehicle before. The only time that you have been in a vehicle is as a passenger all your life and you hope to get a driver's license. No, it doesn't work like that. But you acquire the knowledge. You acquire the skills. Over a long period of time, 
and some of you probably made several attempts and you kept failing and you're almost giving up getting a driver's license. You persisted until finally on the 11th attempt, you got it. And so there is a process of learning. There's a process of exploration. There's a process of discovery. And that discovery day by day creates that ambience where romance will now thrive. Apply that knowledge. Live it out every day. Are you a good student? Of the gift that God has given to you. Number two. Provide leadership in the pursuit of romance. Provide leadership in the pursuit of romance. Justin Buzzard has written a very, very good book entitled Date Your Wife. Date Your Wife. It's not something that ended with the very moment when she said, I do, and said, yeah, now I've graduated. Yeah, that was something. No, it goes on. So in that book, he says, husbands should be big dreamers. Men, we should have a bigger dream for our marriages than our wives have for them. We are the leaders in this marriage institution. God is the one who has appointed us to be leaders. And so as a leader, you should have a bigger dream for your marriage than you have for your work, than you have for any responsibility or interest in life. Next to our relationship with God, our biggest dream should revolve around how we steward the marriage that God has given to us. Romance has to be pursued, and pursued with effort, pursued with eagerness, pursued with intentionality, as well as grace. Do you have a dream for your marriage? Have you shared that dream with your wife? Is that dream rooted in scripture? Where do you wish to be a year or two from now? How is that dream shaping up in your marriage? What are you doing to take you and your wife to, to that dream, to, to, to that uh, uh, which has been conceptualized in, in your mind as, as you seek to live according to God's word. What is it that you are pursuing and how are you demonstrating leadership in that area? God's grace should not just be a doctrine in your head, but it must be a power in your life as you relate with your wife. Nothing happens without a dream. Nothing happens without a vision. Nothing happens without anything that you are looking forward to. If there's no vision, there's no dream, there's no aspiration that you are reaching out for, your marriage will be stuck. Like our gate was stuck two days ago and it couldn't open. Even when you put it into manual mode, couldn't be pushed, jumped, and the vehicle is outside, 
I went through the small gate and it was raining. Nothing at all. Jumped. No movement. Made one or two calls. Do this, do that, do that. And finally it opened. You don't want to be stuck in something as important and God-honoring as marriage. Number three, develop and sustain a genuine interest in your wife. And, and that sounds very simple. Well, that's why I've married her, because I saw her, I developed a love for her, and I was interested in her. That's why I've married her. So why? What do you mean? Well, it begins by the very simple act of noticing her presence. Especially if you have been away from each other, no matter how short the period of time you have been away from each other. It may seem obvious, but it can be all too easy to become so engrossed in your own world. To become so taken up in your own world that you hardly notice anything around you, not even your wife. You can be so overtaken and overwhelmed with your hobbies, with your sports, with your gadgets, with your TV. That you hardly even notice your wife walking into the house from work, from a visit with a friend, from the grocery store where she went to get some supplies for home. So engrossed, updating your, 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 your Facebook status or watching your favorite soccer team and because it's not even doing so well. You are just in another mood. And you look at her as if she is the coach of your team. And even when she says, hi there, you just snap back an answer without even looking at her. Develop and sustain a genuine interest. Hi dear, I'm home. And you leave what you are doing. You rush to the source of the voice. And you hug her and welcome her back home. How has been your day? With a kiss on the lips or on the cheek. Your failure to do so is a sign of ungodliness. Your spontaneous desire to do so is a mark of godliness. Because that's what God expects you to do. That's what Adam did. Ecstatic about this woman that has been brought into his life. Notice her. When wives feel like they are second place, it's not usually because there's another woman that is competing with her. More often, women feel second place to some activity or hobby that takes priority in the husband's life. Why I can't, I can't talk now. It's, it's extra time. Thirty minutes, and then we can sit down and talk. Will you die? If you do not see the match up to the end, will you die if you record and watch it later? Will you be something different 
a good part of you will be taken away from you. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Everything else must come to a standstill and notice her, attend to her. And so if your wife begins to feel like she's second place to Manu, to Arsenal, to Real Madrid, to Red Bull because of Patsondaka and Mwepu, if she begins to think she's second place, Remove that threat so that she confidently begins to feel like she is first place. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gorge it out. It's better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell with both eyes. We must be ruthless with whatever takes our attention away from our wives. Number four, constantly affirm your wife. I've already run out of time and I'm yet to go to two more, which I may not even go to, but I probably will end at five. Constantly affirm your wife. Song of Songs reminds us that our desire for intimacy is fundamentally a good desire, a godly desire, a noble desire. And for a woman, deep down, she longs for that intimacy. She longs to find someone who will call her beautiful, someone who will affirm her, someone who will affirm and celebrate her beauty, someone who will affirm her gifts a talent, someone who would delight in the ways in which she has been uniquely and wonderfully made by God. And so you pursue her with a fervent, passionate commitment to love her, to cherish her, to serve her, and laying down your life daily for her. One of the things that I encourage us to do is to read Song of Songs with our wives together and discuss it. The imagery there was a suitable imagery for that context, for that agrarian culture. Obviously, there are certain things that you cannot begin to say to your wife that she is this, but there are equivalents according to our times that we, we can. But what is important is affirmation. Affirmation. Even though she may acknowledge her beauty as uh, the, the, the Shunammite does in Song of Songs in chapter 1, verse 5 to 11, she says, I'm dark but beautiful. She, she's crying out for affirmation. She wants someone to see her and to love her just as she is, complete in a weather-beaten complexion, complicated family situation, and everything that goes into her being. And the man comes along and he says to her, you are beautiful. 
He doesn't come and dismiss her fears over her appearance as unspiritual or ridiculous. How can you think and speak of yourself like what? No, the man doesn't do that. But he seizes the opportunity and he speaks with the language of affirmation. And that is not something that you just do during your courtship. It is something that you continue to do constantly throughout your lives together. Number five, explore ways to deepen your romance. Explore ways to deepen your romance. You see, textbooks, books, Christian books that have been written, yes, are there simply to be a guide. The exploration is between the two of you as you are getting to know one another and you're providing that leadership. Because what might work for another couple may not necessarily work for you. So what you read in one book is not applicable universally to all except that which is from the scriptures, which is applicable to all. So a book may suggest certain things and you try them out and they are a disaster for you. So you need to know each other, know each other so well and see what works well and see those ways that deepen your romance and you give feedback to one another and you say, yes, yes, we, we are not where we were when we got married. Of course, those that have written books have suggested certain things that we can do in order to deepen our romance and certain things that we may take for granted and think they are not a big deal. They are. Leave them out. They are. Justin Buzzard mentions a few and a few that I got from uh, uh, several other books that uh, I was able to, re to uh, interact with. Walter Kaiser has written an excellent book, Love by the Book, what the Song of Solomon says about sexuality, romance, and the beauty of marriage. And certain suggestions that are given to us are worth applying and implementing in our own marriages as we explore ways to deepen our romance. Let me run through some of the lists that I was able to come and appreciate which probably some of you are already doing, or some of you already know them but have not begun to do so. Some of you probably did for a while and you have gotten tired and weary. No, you shouldn't. Keep at it. Take your wife out to dinner at least once a month or more if you can. Cut something from your budget and use that money on your wife. That's sacrifice. Pray for your wife and with your wife every day. Tell your wife the reasons why she's your best friend. Ask her about areas of your friendship you need to work on and become a better friend to her. Discover the things you are both excited about and do them together. Learn to love some of the things that she loves doing and she will begin to learn to love some of the things that you yourself love doing. 
Don't force her to be an arsenal fan for your sake. Because she doesn't want to wear the gloomy face you normally wear when your team loses. So learn to find some common ground of the things that you can do together. Make your wife laugh. Get good at saying and doing things that cause your wife to laugh. I'm not saying you must be Trevor Noah or Muinemushi or any of these comedians. But there are certain things that we, we can learn to do and say and just bring laughter and relaxation and diffuse whatever tension might be building up in our home, laugh. You don't have to drive in silence from your home to church. The only conversation is, have you seen how this minibus driver is driving? Very useless, very inconsiderate of others. And that's the only conversation that you have had from home to church. And back home, so that sermon was too long. Why can't the elders tell the pastor that these sermons have become too long? And that's the only conversation. It's so much to talk about and, and, and laugh together. Ask your wife these kind of questions on a regular basis. How are you? How do you feel? How is your relationship with the Lord? How can I better love you? How can I pray for you? And those are beginning points for a rich, enriching conversation with her. Mark your wife's birthday. Mark your wedding anniversary. Take note of Mother's Day. And any other important events and days on your calendar every year and plan to make those days special. How do you remember the birthday three days later? Yeah, yeah, this AG, yeah. I'm approaching 50, so yeah. just forgive us. No, there are so many ways in which you can be reminded. If it means putting an alarm on your phone, do so. Don't, don't, don't remember. That enriches romance. Make time for dinner with your wife on a regular basis. Write love notes to your wife. Buy her flowers. Tell her all over again and again what she means to you. Cuddle her as often as you can. You don't just cuddle her when you step into bed. That's when you become romantic. Kiss her. Hold your wife's hand often, both in public and in private. In the midst of your busy day at work, call your wife and just simply say, I love you. Enjoy your day. Bye. <laughs> Is that too hard to do? That's not hard. Take new pictures of you and your wife. Mount these pictures on the walls in your house. Put on the desk in your office. Carry them on your phone. Use it as your screensaver on your phone, on your laptop. 
shower your wife with special gifts on a special days and sometimes even from nowhere. Give her a gift. Notice when your wife is particularly tired, drained, or stressed out, and on such days step in and take one or two responsibilities off her shoulders. I've asked for a day off from work because you are not feeling too well. So I'll be around to assist, whether it's with the meals, whether it's with the baby. You do that. What are you communicating? Love for her. You are creating an, an atmosphere of romance. And love just comes naturally and spontaneously. Plan for holidays and vacations together. If both of you are working, take leave at the same time and go out and have a good time somewhere with or without the children. Simply talk and laugh and review the times together and make amends where you have failed. Those are some of the suggestions. None of them is hard for any one of us to do. You see, to be romantic is not a very expensive thing. You don't need to get a loan for romance. It can be done. The means are there, and God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness, and it is not expensive unless you have a demanding wife who will not get anything for her birthday other than iPhone 12 Pro, which you need to save up for for two years, and by that time another one has come on the scene. Or if you have, you are the chairman of the Stingy Men Association of Zambia. And you are not willing to invest at all in what is noble and will build the life of romance together. But you know what, at the end of the day, let me quickly conclude. We cannot be all these things in our own strength in our own power. Hard as we try, there will simply be a ritual we soon grow weary of doing and we relapse back to who we are. That's why we need the grace of God. The command given in Ephesians chapter 5 to husbands to love their wives and the measure of that love and the nature and quality of, love, of that love, that command can never be lived out in anyone in whom the grace of God is not active and operative. We need the grace of God. We are not equal to the task. We are inadequate. We have no resources except the resources that God himself provides to us. And we have the example of our Lord himself who truly experienced what it means to sacrifice for his sheep. 
and to ignite in our hearts a love for him which we could never have had. And he is the one to whom we must look. He is the one to whom we must turn so that he perfects in us the desire to do his will so that at the end of the day we will have our wives who will be able to say to us, Thank you for your love. You do not just say it, but I feel it every day from you. For those of us who are married, are we that romantic to our wives? For those of you that are yet to get married, do you look at this as too much for you to do and therefore you postpone any desires for marriage until you think you can live up to this? No, it's not anything that you can do by your own effort and energy and wisdom and power. It is by the grace of God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross to atone for our sins, to atone for our failures and our broken friendship with God. And he has repaired that so that we can live for him and fulfill all the Lord's commands and commands related to how we are going to live with our spouses. Because at the cross, love deliberately entered the power of death Love laid down its life, making that ultimate sacrifice. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, that is how we are to love our wives. That is how we are to love them. May the Lord himself bless his word to our hearts, that we may be such husbands to our wives. Let us pray. Father, may you... Help us to live by this lofty standard and a standard which may appear untenable to us, but by your grace it is. So empower us, O oh Lord, to be loving, romantic husbands to our wives who are hungering for that from us. And honor yourself in our relationship with them and train us in that pursuit so that every day is like our honeymoon that is never declining but is simply growing and the flames are burning ever brightly in our lives day by day. We ask this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We, we are very grateful uh, for, for, for the contribution that our brother has made clearly.